This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from locations in Wisconsin and Minnesota via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A sixth person has died after a man drove an SUV through a Christmas parade in Waukesha on Sunday, the Associated Press reports. Eight-year-old Jackson Sparks, who was walking in the parade with his brother, died earlier today. He is the youngest victim of the attack so far. This incident also left 62 other people injured, including Sparks' brother Tucker, who remains in the hospital. Prosecutors have charged Daryl Brooks Jr. with five counts of intentional homicide today, though more charges are still pending. A charitable fundraiser for money from the commu- to the community has received over $600,000 as of this morning, and over 18 verified GoFundMe pages for the victims have raised an additional $776,000. You can donate to the fund at waukeshafoundation.org forward slash parade. Wisconsin Insurance Commissioner Mark Affable will be stepping down next month. Governor Tony Evers, who appointed Affable in December 2018, announced his departure earlier today. The position was created in 1870 and serves to protect and educate Wisconsin consumers by maintaining a strong insurance industry. Governor Evers said, quote, his dedication to expanding health insurance access, protecting a competitive insurance marketplace, and building insurance awareness has made a huge difference in our state, unquote. Current Deputy Insurance Commissioner Nathan Hodeck will serve as the interim commissioner once Affable has officially left the position. James Madison Memorial High School will soon be renamed Val Phillips Memorial High School. That's after the Madison Metropolitan School Board voted unanimously to approve the name change, reports the Capital Times. The idea to rename the school began in March of this year when a Memorial student submitted a proposal to change the name. Belle Phillips is one of the most significant black women in Wisconsin's history. She was the first black woman to graduate from the University of Wisconsin Law School and the first black woman and individual to be elected to a statewide office. The name change will go into effect at the beginning of the 2022-2023 school year. In related name changes, Fitchburg announced today that they are considering renaming their city hall after Francis Huntley Cooper. Huntley Cooper was the first and only elected black mayor in the state's history, serving as mayor of Fitchburg from 1991 to 1993. Nearly three decades later, no other black person has been elected as mayor in Wisconsin. The only other African-American to serve as mayor in the state was Marvin Pratt, who was appointed, not elected, to lead Milwaukee in 2004. The call to honor Francis Huntley Cooper comes from Boys and Girls Clubs of Dane County President Michael Johnson, who wrote a letter to Fitchburg Mayor Aaron Richardson asking for the name change. The proposal heads to the Fitchburg City Council in late January. The Urban League of Madison's new Black Business Hub is getting a boost from the Pleasant T. Rowland Foundation. This hub, located on the corner of Park and Hughes, is set to become Madison's top Black-led enterprise center. Today, it got an additional $1 million in funding to support its plan of Black-led retail storefronts, small business offices, and other entrepreneurship. Currently, only 0.4% of Dane County businesses with more than one employee are Black-owned. The league hopes to begin construction on the hub next month. A Madison developer has filed an ethics complaint against the city assessor. The subject of the ethics complaint, candy bars. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that local developer Terrence Wall filed the complaint against city assessor Michelle Drea. He claims Drea's distribution of candy bars at a Board of Review meeting may have affected votes that evening. 
Drea tells the Wisconsin State Journal, quote, I take umbrage that the board would be influenced by snacks, unquote. Wall attended the meeting to challenge the city's assessment of two of his properties. He lost. The Board of Review upheld the city's assessments and is appealing the decision on one of the properties to Dane County Circuit Court. Madison Dane County Public Health has issued a new order requiring people to wear masks in public going into 2022. This reverses an earlier announcement that there would be no more masking orders after the current one expires. There's one important exception to this order. It allows people to remove their masks if all individuals in an enclosed space are fully vaccinated. The new mandate, which goes into effect on Saturday just as the current order expires, will be in effect through the new year, specifically to January 3rd, 2022. Wisconsin health officials reported 4,262 new cases of COVID-19 today. It's the highest single day number in nearly a year before vaccines were available. The state's seven-day average is about where we were in mid-December 2020. And now on to today's top stories. The city of Madison grew by nearly 16% over the past decade, making it one of the fastest-growing cities in Wisconsin, according to new census figures. City officials say that growth isn't stopping anytime soon, as Madison is projected to grow by 70,000 people over the next two decades. But with that growth comes a housing squeeze. One proposal could give a housing alternative to some and cut red tape in the process. WORT Assistant News Director Nate Wegehout has the details. Accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, are small housing units built on the same property of an existing home. The small flats are also called granny flats or backyard cottages and are only allowed on properties that have single-family homes. Now, City of Madison leaders are looking to cut red tape, changing zoning requirements so that accessory dwelling units are easier for Madison residents to build. The proposal, approved unanimously at last night's plan commission, would still require homeowners to apply for permission from the city, but it would reconstruct how homeowners apply to build these flats. Currently, these dwelling units are zoned under something called conditional use that involves a request to the city's plan commission, which some alders say can be a lengthy and unpredictable process. Under the proposed legislation, accessible dwelling units would be subject to something called permitted use, an easier and more predictable process. Alder Patrick Heck represents Madison's Near East Side and is one of the sponsors on the legislation. He says changing this process is important, as going to the city plan commission can be intimidating. I, I think the fact that it's a conditional use rather than permitted is a is a barrier that that trip to plan commission isn't necessarily in, in and of itself a bad thing but it does open up the process so that honestly neighbors can weigh in and oftentimes i think folks who want to build an adu or alders become hesitant because uh, neighbors oftentimes have complained about the prospect of having an adu in an adjacent property or nearby because they feel like it's somehow going to impact their quality of life. Alders Lindsay Lemmer, Tag Evers, and Grant Foster are also sponsors on the legislation. So too is Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who earlier this year announced a new set of initiatives to address the need to increase housing choice and create affordable housing in the city. The plan could be a way to address growing housing concerns in Madison, allowing more living spaces to be built without having to build new apartments. 
apartment buildings. Alder Heck says that the proposal is about options. Uh, I, I think opening up the process and making it a little bit easier to build an accessory dwelling unit will provide more options for for more housing. Heck, who himself is a member of the 12-member plan commission, says that they are also trying to make accessory dwelling units a more viable option for every single-family home in the city. During budget negotiations earlier this month, the Common Council approved a budget amendment that would establish a new loan program for homeowners seeking to build accessory dwelling units. The $400,000 program is slated to give direct loans to homeowners, particularly those without access to full finance through traditional means. Alder Heck, along with 13 other alders, voted to fund the program. We're also hoping to grow the capabilities citywide by having uh, this pilot program that we've also funded for next year where we'll provide capital costs to, or partial capital costs at least, to people who want an ADU who are unable to get traditional financing because of being lower income or moderate income. So we're, we're also hoping to boost uh, the city, a city website up, get a wet city website up that will have ADU plans and things so that people don't need to go to the expense of hiring an architect. Under the proposal, which still needs approval from the full Common Council, Homeowners will still need to live on the property, meaning a single-family home and its associated ADU can't be rented out at the same time. Ordinances regulating Airbnb would also still apply, meaning dwellings couldn't be rented out for more than 30 days if the homeowner does not live on the property. Also under the proposal, ADUs would be limited to two bedrooms, 900 square feet in total, and no higher than 15 feet except in certain circumstances. The plan was unanimously approved by the Madison's Plan Commission. It now heads back to the Common Council for consideration in two weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, the Greater Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization announced funding for multiple roadway projects around the city. But what is the Greater Madison MPO? WORT Assistant News Director Nate Wegehout went looking for answers. The Greater Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization, or MPO, recently announced several projects to help fund transportation roadways around the Madison area. WORT decided to talk with them today about who they are and what they do for the city. With me today is Bill Schaefer, the Director and Transportation Planning Manager for the Greater Madison MPO. Bill, thank you so much for talking with me today. Sure. Glad to, glad to be here. Starting off here, what exactly is an MPO and how many of them are there? There are, I would say, between five and, no, there's probably closer to 10 MPOs in the state. So, MPOs are required by federal law for any urban area, metropolitan area, over 50,000 population. We are in a separate class of larger MPOs, over uh, 250,000 in in population. So they're they're, uh, required and have been required for some time to, uh, as a condition of receiving federal transportation money that comes to the, the region. And the reason really is to have a body responsible for coordinating uh, land use and transportation planning and projects 
amongst the, the local jurisdictions within the area, as well as the State Department of Transportation in, in, in the county. So our role, one of our key roles really is to kind of serve, um, coordinate decision-making on regional transportation, um, you know, planning, um, policy, and, 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 and projects. And um, as part of that, one of our primary responsibilities is to prepare a long-range transportation plan for the metro area. So, and then any project that receives federal funding or is otherwise deemed regionally significant must be approved by the the MPO, by our policy board. So you mentioned the regional transportation plan, which I'm going to get back to in just a little bit here, but just sort of starting off, where does the funding for these kind of projects come from? So the, we our funding is primarily federal. We eighty percent of our funding for our agency budget for our planning work for the, for staff and and associated expenses comes from uh, federal planning funds. And then the funding that we have for projects for uh, to award to the county and local communities that also comes from. The, it's it's federal gas tax money that then flows back to the states and then in, in, for some of it flows to MPOs. So the money it's comes from federal sort of grants to help fund these projects for the city. Are there any barriers or difficulties to using these sorts of federal funds to help pay for city improvements or are they sort of federal funds set aside specifically for helping MPOs pay for these improvements? There, there are there are special requirements that are attached to the federal funding. Um, federal requirements related to environmental study for project, in some cases, design requirements like for roadway projects and that sort of thing, meeting you know ADA requirements, other other federal requirements, those sorts of things. So there are some kind of you know so-called strings attached to the to the money that that in some cases can increase the cost of projects. But there are a number of what are called the kind of formula programs that flow to the states and then um, and, and the money is eligible for different types of projects. Much of the money goes to the state and the state uses it on state highway projects. But there are a few programs that are, you know, specifically designed for to fund local projects versus state projects. And we receive funding under three of them. Um, and the biggest one is is called Surface Transportation Block Grant Urban. There's also a rural component that funds projects in rural areas. So that's the biggest one. And we receive about $7 million a year currently under that program. And then there's another program called the Transportation Alternatives Program, which funds primarily active transportation projects, usually m- mostly uh, bicycle, pedestrian paths, but we've also funded like the Safe Routes to School Program. So, you know, some education activities and that, and that sort of thing. And then there's a third program that's a transit program that funds uh, projects to provide uh, improved mobility for seniors and persons with disabilities. Most of the transit money that flows to the Madison area goes directly to Metro Transit as the as the major transit operator. And so the, the money comes directly to us. We solicit ap- applications and select projects based on criteria um, that we have um, adopted that, you know, to, to support projects consistent with the goals, um, policies, and, and project recommendations in our plan. 
I know last week you guys announced that the funding for multiple projects throughout the city, for instance, adding bike lanes over on Atwood Avenue, multi-use paths on Mineral Point Road, uh, reconstructing bridges and shoreline over on John Nolan Drive. How does the MPO decide which projects to fund? What's the criteria for these projects? Uh, we have criteria. Um, we, we have kind of general categories of, of criteria things like safety, the environment, equity, you know, supporting, uh, expanding uh, transportation choice in, 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 you know, options for people in the region. And then we have specific criteria within those categories for the different types of projects, one being road construction projects, another being bicycle projects, transit projects, and then also a, 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 another category is intelligent transportation systems technology, so, so technology project. And most of the funding that we have approved through this program that we just announced, uh, you know, our largest one, has been road construction projects. But every project, every road construction project that we've approved has included um, pedestrian and bicycle facilities as part of the project. And in many cases, in recent years, um, uh, off-street facilities, not just bike lanes on the street, but, you know, a, a path along the street, a grade-separated crossing of the street, for instance. And so, uh, and then this time we did actually fund, and this is actually the first time that we received a, a bicycle, independent bicycle project, an application under this program, where we're funding the Autumn Ridge multi-use path goes through Heastamp Park and then the overpass of State Trunk Highway 30, which is part of a route that will get someone from the, like the Cap City Trail and the, and the Madison Bike Network to East Town, and then ultimately the plan is to then extend that in the rail corridor to Sun Prairie. So the Greater Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization, it covers a pretty large multitude of cities, towns, and villages in the area from Madison and Fitchburg all the way over to Cross Plains and Stoughton. How is it decided how large the area will be? So the way we determine the official kind of jurisdictional area of the MPO within which the federal planning requirements apply and within which, you know, the MPO must approve projects. Um, so that's determined for two-step process. First is every, after every decennial census, the Census Bureau uh, identifies urbanized area boundaries for, for metropolitan, uh, you know, or, or urban areas. And so, so we, we start with that. We make some adjustments to that to, you know, in some cases, for instance, to make sure that it includes, uh, uh, you know, a, a regional roadway of significance. And then we identify our planning area. And, and the main criteria is we're looking at areas that are expected to develop um, within the next 20 to 30 years, which is our time frame for our long range plan, as well as, again, if there is, you know, our regional roadways that the MPO wants to make sure that it has the agency has a say in terms of what happens in those roadways because they because of their significance from a regional standpoint. So that's that's how that planning boundary is determined, and it's again it's done every ten years. So you mentioned earlier the regional transportation plan, and I want to circle back to that. Can you explain to me what this plan is? Sure. So the so the regional plan is 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 our overall framework plan, similar to say like a local community's land use plan. They they have what's called a a, a comprehensive plan. So that's kind of their overall 
framework land use development plan for, in this case, this is the kind of the framework transportation plan for the region, covers all modes of transportation and sets guiding policy, identifies future projects, um, in some cases identifies studies, and then also, you know, strategies to be implemented. And, and much of the implementation is done by the state, DOT, or local units of government, or the county. You know, the MPO, we are strictly a, a planning and then a funding agency. So we do plans, we provide technical assistance, provide information, we make recommendations, but we ultimately don't design and build real roads or bike paths or operate transit service. We're strictly a, a, a planning and, and financing agency. So so the, so the regional plan kind of sets that overall framework and has these recommendations. And then often um, for large projects, like a, like, a, like a major state highway project, like the Beltline, those recommendations related to a project like that, typically there is a corridor study that's done to flesh out the details of what the particular project improvement should should entail because you just need more information. You need a higher level of detail of, of, of analysis than what we can provide. One of the things we, we do, one of the services we do is we provide uh, traffic, regional traffic for, for, forecasts. And that's done when we update our plan. We're looking at, you know, where growth is going to occur and then forecasting travel based on that and, and various other, other, other factors. And in, in this case, for this regional plan update, we're working and coordinating, coordinating that effort very closely with our partner agency, which is the Capital Area Regional Planning Commission, which does the land use and environmental planning at a regional level. And they're updating and developing a regional development framework and so and, and uh, had developed a, a growth scenario uh, working with us and City of Madison planning staff that we're now then using to develop the transportation plan to kind of serve that recommended growth scenario, how we want to grow as a region. I've been talking with Bill Schaefer, Director and Transportation Planning Manager for the Greater Madison Metropolitan Planning Organization. Bill, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Oh, sure. Happy to and glad. Uh, I know a lot of people probably hadn't heard of the MPO, so hopefully this, this was enlightening. And, and feel free, uh, would encourage you to check us out, check out our website, as well as our Regional Transportation Plan um, website as well. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call explores student housing issues on the UW campus. Wildlife Weekly examines Wisconsin's growing deer population. And Radio Astronomy shares an ambitious survey into the state of its science. So now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, the Cardinal crew looks at student housing, including Greek life and the sophomore slums. 
how can I really think about my short-term existence in this city and how I can do better to affect it down the road. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our editor-in-chief, Addison Lathers, to talk about our action project for this semester, which is focused on the impacts of student living on the Madison community. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Hope. So every semester, we've come out with an action project. What would you say is the purpose behind these projects that we do? We do these action projects for the purpose of getting to deep dive into topics that we can't necessarily, you know, really cover in a thousand to 2000 words. And we have specifically looked at issues that very seriously impact not only students, but our surrounding communities to give our reporters that chance to really delve into not just what's happening at UW Madison, but what's happening at state, um, local levels, um, nationally, and so forth and so forth. Yeah, so this semester was pretty special. Um, We had the honor to work with Pointer on this project. So how did we get selected as one of those colleges? It was basically uh, you're applying to the Pointer uh, Media Group to essentially be one of the colleges they pick to kind of sponsor a bigger, wider project. And they offered, you know, trainings, um, assistance, meetings with really cool journalists in the field, Pulitzer Prize winners, you know, people from the New York Times, the Atlantic, just really cool journalists to help you kind of pursue this project. And we went ahead and applied. And sure enough, two weeks later, we got the call that we had been selected along with four other universities. Yeah. So let's briefly talk about um, the types of living situations that we reported on, starting with dorms. What's the story there? And what are the challenges facing on-campus housing for the future? We wanted to talk to, you know, the public history project at UW to kind of understand dorms in general. You know, where did they come from at UW? Uh, when were they built? Have they always been there? And what were students living situations like, you know, 100 years ago, 75 years ago, you know, and their answer was that we did not used to have this many dorms. We didn't have to used to have this many students And after, you know, World War II, this influx of students coming back that really wanted to go to college meant that there were hundreds of students that just did not have housing. And so while UW was building dorms left and right, there were students literally in tents that couldn't find off-campus housing either. And it was this really interesting situation where the neighborhoods around UW-Madison were just kind of edged out because of that. As, you know, dorms were built, as uh, students needed apartments, um, and so forth and so forth. And so we know that background of dorms now based on the fact that we have a lovely story. And aside from that, we wanted to look at the future of dorms. You know, this past year has been a record-breaking freshman class. Uh, A lot of kids simply did not have housing on campus. We couldn't promise housing to transfer students in dorms. We had a conference center on campus turned into student housing solely because we didn't have enough rooms in our dorms. And looking to the future, UW housing isn't really a part of UW-Madison's master plan. Like there's not right now plans to build these, you know, bigger dorms to house more students. In fact, there's plans in the future to tear down two student on-campus resident facilities. 
So we really wanted to question housing and see what their plans were because they don't say classes are going to get bigger. But based on you know history, we know classes are going to keep getting bigger and they're going to keep needing housing and kids are going to have to keep looking outside for housing. Yeah. So the next option that some students choose are these luxury apartment buildings that are really specifically marketed to students downtown. So what are the tensions between satisfying this demand for housing and also grappling with how it affects sort of the charm, the atmosphere of State Street? One of our uh, writers, Charlie Hildebrand, uh, interviewed Alder Revere, and his answer was, you know, these buildings are ugly. And the ones that we built a while ago, like Hub, that at the time they thought that they were going to be like great ideas, they were going to work really well within the downtown sphere, were built and they were monstrosities. They don't look great. So there's that. We know that they're tending to not be really pretty. They're glass concrete structures. But like beyond that, there is a there's a kind of a bigger impact than just the visual. And that comes in the result of affordability. And these Luxury apartment buildings aren't being marketed as, you know, for the for students that, you know, work a part time job to afford rent or students that, you know, maybe are slightly housing um, insecure and are just coming out of dorms and need somewhere to go. They're marketed, you know, as luxury living. They're not supposed to be affordable. There's they're upwards of, you know, a thousand to two thousand dollars in rent to share a room. And that's obviously going to have a big impact on Madison residents in general. What, what's happening when these luxury buildings are being built that, that are marketed solely towards students and young professionals, which is an odd term, is that that housing is being taken away from someone else or that housing is being taken away from a general public that can afford that. So for some students who can't afford luxury apartments, um, they're moving into the surrounding neighborhoods around campus, including the sophomore slums. So why did we hear about students flocking to these areas instead of maybe living closer to campus downtown? There, it, there are two points really into why students move so quickly into off-campus housing is that there's not enough space in dorms and that the downtown isn't an affordable area for students. And a lot of the students that were interviewed for this issue remarked that they're not quite sure about the name sophomore slums because this area really isn't all that bad. It's not really a slum. It's just older houses and townhouses and places where students really can afford rent if they're working, you know, a part time, you know, to 40 hours a week that they can afford that reasonably and it doesn't hurt their quality of living. And we also kind of split this area into off-campus and commuters because some students don't even see, you know, that area as being affordable enough for them or really what they desire. They're willing to go, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes off-campus walking to get, you know, kind of the situation that they are looking for. And that has had interesting implications on the surrounding area of Madison. Obviously, those kind of areas along like the Greenbush neighborhood, those didn't you didn't always have students living there. There used to be families, there used to be like actual residences. And throughout time, they have been more populated by students, students that are just, you know, trying to go outside of this area that they're supposed to live to actually find affordable housing and find affordable housing that they can actually get access to. Yeah. So finally, we looked at one last living situation, and that is Greek life. So what did we hear about the costs, both financial and otherwise, that are associated with being involved in sororities and fraternities? For this specific section, we actually had two stories that were kind of related to the cost. We had the material cost and the societal cost. And the material cost we found from interviewing several members of Greek life is that it's 
kind of expensive. It's anywhere from, you know, $10,000 to $18,000 a year based on rent, based on dues, based on extra costs that were brought up, including, you know, parties, hotel rooms, uh, event attendance, all those things that are sometimes in, in, included in dues and not all the time included in dues. So there are surprise costs there. And what we found is that while these things are pricey, Greek Life is doing a good job now to make sure that that cost is transparent. And several of the uh, frats and sororities that we spoke to stated that they make those numbers very clear from the beginning. So that was kind of a welcoming thing to see. Yes, it is pricey, but there is movements to make sure that students can afford that. And several of these entities are working towards scholarships that are needs-based for their members to make sure that the people that can afford those things do have the opportunity to get involved if they really want to. And there's still the social cost. We spoke to a member of a sorority that chose to leave her sorority after she noticed a couple of things that were just not quite right with her. She didn't enjoy being compared to people constantly. She noted that while Greek life was a great way to meet friends, she also had a lot of friends that she wasn't actually friends with. They were court, sort of what she would call, you know, people that she was around just because she lived in the same house. And that eventually led her to write a bit of an op-ed for um, the Bell magazine um, to abolish Greek life. You know, uh, she noted that several of her friends have been sexually assaulted or raped at the hands of Greek life and that there has not been accountability for that yet. Great. Do you have any final thoughts on what this project means for the Cardinal to produce or for the students and the community to read? I think that while students read our issue and they look at our online version, we really want people to look at their own impact and think about, you know, this is what's happening around me. How can I do better as a person? You know, how can I be more considerate of my neighbors? How can I really think about my short-term existence in this city and how I can do better to affect it down the road and do better in the long term. We know we're temporary residents, but we are still here nine months out of the year. And that's really something to think about. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Hope. That's all for Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Find a print edition near you to read our action project. It's also available online at dailycardinal.com under our action projects tab. Keep an eye out for our latest episode of the Student Dive podcast, where we talk about some of our stories in our action project. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Oh, dear. Wisconsin's deer population is climbing and climbing higher. On this week's edition of Wildlife Weekly, contributor Jackie Sandberg explains all the issues that a growing number of deer around the state can bring. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, 
And today we're going to be talking about white-tailed deer. Now, I've talked about deer in other segments here on WORT, but this time I thought it was a little bit more important to share some information over this Thanksgiving holiday weekend uh, because, of course, we're approaching hunting season and this might be the time of year where we as rehabilitators are really trying to make sure that folks are aware of what issues can crop up here in the next you know, month or so in relation to hunting or deer hunting here in Wisconsin. So uh, we do have many white-tailed deer in our state, um, and actually in current population estimates, which we definitely keep up with as wildlife rehabilitators, are that there's actually an overpopulation of deer, according to DNR census and counts. Um, it's not in the very severe category, but I would definitely encourage you to look up what our state statistics are, uh, but we're at least in the moderate to close to high population of deer as of last year, uh, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. Thing. Um, good thing for hunters, maybe, because there might be more deer out in our population. Uh, bad for people uh, that are in our community because, well, maybe more deer are entering their backyards, causing damage, or we see many, many deer hit by car. Um, so we know that those cause accidents, fatalities for people, uh, but also then those animals, uh, if they aren't deceased from an injury, will unfortunately suffer on a roadside, which then requires mobilization from police or DNR biology or a warden. Um, and at worst case, if there's no one available, you know, our center has been one of those to occasionally help to, um, you know, dart a deer that required emergency euthanasia if it was um, fractured and not able to stand. Uh, we've only done that, I think, twice in our history, and it's not something that we can regularly do because it's uh, a huge burden, actually, on our program to get all the staffing and veterinarians together and medications, and there's a legal process. Um, the DNR is generally usually the, the folks that would coordinate that type of effort. Uh, now, that being said, uh, so yes, lots of deer that are sick, uh, injured, maybe uh, from human influence. Uh, sickness is one that's kind of high on our list for talking about this year. Um, I know that we've mentioned CWD, uh, chronic wasting disease, is definitely a huge issue in deer. Um, but right now, we're actually more concerned with COVID-19. Did you know that just this last uh, couple of weeks, there were some studies that came out talking about COVID-19 and white-tailed deer? So they did a number of surveys uh, in December 2020 to January 2021. And just as an example, in Iowa, which is very close to Wisconsin here, actually 80% of the white-tailed deer that were sampled in different parts of Iowa during that time frame tested positive for COVID. Uh, that's a huge finding. Uh, nobody has really known that deer uh, in the wild are currently harboring the virus or have it. Um, we definitely knew that the transmission of COVID to white-tailed deer, uh, it was very easy for them to catch it. Uh, but we don't really see anything that, you know, alarming in the wildlife populations to say that it affects them at all. Um, seems to suggest that it's circulating, but it's not causing them any sort of health concerns, at least not at this time. Um, so, you know, seeing that there were that many deer already in our area testing positive, it's something to think about if you're a hunter or if you are outside in the environment and you have symptoms of COVID, you know, we don't really know if it's being uh, transmitted most frequently through the air or direct contact, uh, maybe deer farms. It's hard to say, but I'm sure there'll be more information coming out. 
Um, and for us in the wildlife rehab field, that is definitely um, a bigger concern because we might work with deer. Um, our center doesn't rehabilitate deer, but we do want to make sure that we stay up on all of the legal requirements, be ready to intake a deer if for some reason there is an emergency situation, be able to transfer a deer potentially to another rehab location, and just in general know what to do if people are going to call about a white-tailed deer that they found, whether it was a fawn or an adult. So we definitely keep up on it regardless of our licensing for that species. Um, and knowing that there are some COVID-19 risks currently right now, you know, it makes us wonder, okay, well, if a deer is a potential host and this virus then can somehow uh, continue changing, uh, maybe new variants or uh, virulence could change. Deer are heavily saturated in the state. And so, um, you know, we don't know what the rehab laws are going to look like moving forward. With chronic wasting disease, there was a ban on wildlife rehabilitation uh, for white-tailed deer. Just like right now, COVID-19 bat rehabilitation is banned. Uh, so definitely check out the DNR website to look at deer numbers, census data, um, the charts that just kind of show the winter survival, um, and definitely look up some of the new information about the COVID-19 um, variant being found in white-tailed deer. Lots of things to think about, but uh, know that, yes, we have a lot of deer. Uh, yes, COVID-19 is kind of a big problem right now in the population of the white-tailed deer. We still have CWD, and we want to make sure that if a sick or injured deer is found, that you call the DNR uh, to help with that if possible, um, and otherwise your closest uh, wildlife Rehab Center that is licensed for deer. Otherwise, you're welcome to give us a call at the Wildlife Center here at the Humane Society at 608-287-3235, and we can help you out with any questions that you might have. And that's uh, a wrap here for today. So thanks for listening on WORT for our segment, um, Wildlife Weekly, and we'll see you next week. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Tonight's edition of Radio Astronomy dives deep into the Astro Decadal 2020 survey, what it says about the state of astronomy today and racial diversity within the astronomy field. After much anticipation, the most ambitious science event of the year just debuted. That's right, we're talking about the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey, astronomy's most important report. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm your host for today, Teddy Pena. Earlier this month, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine published what is essentially the roadmap for the next decade and beyond of astronomy, the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. 
This 615-page document is the product of a years-long investigation involving public debate from thousands of scientists all over the world. The survey was commissioned by NASA, the Department of Energy, and the National Science Foundation, which are the U.S. government agencies primarily responsible for funding science research and outreach. Really, the Astro 2020 survey will be a guide for every facet of astronomy in the near future. We're going to summarize some major points for you, but if this is something you'd like to know more about, search Astro 2020 and look for the interactive report overview. In terms of science, the survey highlights three priority areas, worlds and suns in context, new messengers and new physics, and cosmic ecosystems. We'll go over each of these in a bit more detail. First, worlds and suns in context refers to the importance of the study of exoplanets. Since the 1990s, when the first exoplanet was observed, we've hurtled headfirst into a search for distant worlds. Entire space-based telescopes have been made specifically to search for these elusive planets beyond our solar system. The Decadal Survey places an emphasis on the importance of continuing this search, understanding how planets form and evolve, and learning more about the possibility of finding life out there in the universe. Astronomers hope in particular to search for Earth-like exoplanets with liquid water and other indications of the possibility of alien life. The New Messengers and New Physics section covers a wide group of topics in high-energy astrophysics. Here, the spotlight is cast on the ongoing hunt for answers to dark matter and dark energy, the study of the most explosive star collisions, and the recently born discipline of gravitational wave astronomy. The thread connecting these disparate fields is the incredible intensity at which these objects and events are taking place. The Astro 2020 Decadal Survey advocates for the U.S. to continue to push the boundaries in the world of extreme space science. A notable subpoint here is the report's plea for a giant optical space telescope, which would replace the legendary Hubble Space Telescope. Last but not least, the Cosmic Ecosystems section includes topics such as how galaxies form and evolve, from the effects of dark matter to the impact on stars. There still isn't a unified theory that chronicles how galaxies are born, grown, and extinguished. Given the astronomical distances involved, the most expensive space-based observatories are often required to perform any analysis beyond simple detection. However, it's crucial to keep in mind that while research is important, it's being done by real people who need mentorship and support to continually grow and learn. Furthermore, astronomers in our work do not exist in a vacuum. We must consider the impact that our studies are having outside the field, the good and the bad. Astronomy has long struggled with maintaining a welcoming environment for people from underrepresented groups, and the Astro 2020 survey sets several goals to work towards in this regard. Racial and ethnic diversity among astronomy faculty is one of the weakest points of the field, and the report outlines multiple incentives designed to target this issue. One major area of focus is to improve mentorship and support for astronomy students and postdocs. This is especially intended to help mitigate the financial burden that people face as they're getting their start in the field, which is a burden disproportionately faced by groups that have historically been excluded from astronomy. Also included are recommendations to reinvest in things like bridge programs that offer support as people transition between education and a professional career. While these will be nothing but a boon to any recipient, such programs again seek to aid groups that the field has failed historically. 
and to foster an environment of support and care. Finally, one aspect of the report has been criticized by many voices. The Astro 2020 Decadal Survey doesn't really address how astronomy interacts with climate change. Much like any modern science, astronomy heavily relies on computer simulations and calculations for the majority of its work, with some of the most computationally expensive programs taking up entire supercomputers for months at a time. Running these servers 24-7 is a significant energy cost, but the Astro 2020 survey omits any reference to these programs' carbon footprint, although they recommend reducing traveling by plane to things like conferences or talks. Written by scientists and commissioned by the US government, the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey is our country's playbook for the next 50 plus years of astronomy. If a few years down the line, NASA announces a fancy new space-based telescope, you'll have the knowledge that the groundwork for that was set today. That's all for this week. Remember to keep an eye on the Washburn Observatory Twitter at Washburn underscore OBS regarding updates on public observing. Our next scheduled observing night is next Wednesday, December 1st. So feel free to stop by and check out some cool night sky objects, weather permitting. I'm Teddy Pena, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy Crew, and Hope Carnop, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggy-Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night. <laughs>